if you haven't opened your Bibles, uh, please do so uh, and meet me in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 3, as Emily read for us. And ha- as has been mentioned, uh, this morning we are jumping back into our series on 1 Corinthians. Uh, this is a series that we started over a year ago, and for the next three months, we are going to finish it off. And so we're going to hit 12 through, chapters 12 through 16. Uh, but let's just do a quick recap, because it has been a little while since the last time we were in 1 Corinthians. And this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And for those of you that have been with us, you know that the church in Corinth is probably on the short list for messiest church in history. They, they were wonderful brothers and sisters in the Lord, I'm sure, <laughs> but they were a mess in many ways. And here, here are kind of the contours of the problem. Uh, rather than being shaped by the gospel and gospel wisdom, they were chasing after worldly wisdom. They were chasing after things like status and power, and that was causing divisions in cliques in the church. They were dividing over who followed who and who was greater than who. They also were minimizing holiness in sin. They were actually justifying sin to such a degree that there was actually sin happening in the church that it wasn't even tolerated in the world. And then as we saw last fall, they had this tendency to use knowledge and theology to harm one another rather than loving and serving one another. I mean, sounds like a wonderful community, doesn't it? (laughs) And... If you've been with us over the past year, you know that in this book, there is plenty that is controversial. And we've covered a lot of controversial topics. Church discipline, homosexuality, sexual relations in marriage, head coverings, that was a fun one. We have gone to some fairly controversial places, the kinds of topics that can get you canceled pretty quickly in our culture. But as we come to 1 Corinthians 12, we may be stepping into the most controversial topic of all, at least in the church. Spiritual gifts. (laughs) Some of you, when we started this over a year ago, you've been waiting to get to this part (laughs) or maybe dreading to get to this part. (laughs) But we are entering into the section where the Apostle Paul deals with spiritual gifts. Depending on your history in the church, depending on the background and the things you've experienced, this topic might excite you. You might be excited for the next several weeks as we go through these chapters, or maybe there's a little bit of trepidation. Maybe a little bit of anxiousness and anxiety. What are they gonna, what's, what's he going to say? What is First City's position? How is this going to go down? Because sadly, too often this topic has been used to manipulate and divide the church. It really is sad. And if you've experienced that, you know how hard it is when this topic comes up to have a conversation without your body kind of starting to react. <laughs> you kind of start to tense. And maybe the conversation gets a little heated and people go back and forth. I remember my last three years of high school, I went to a Christian school, and there were kids from all over the city in the, in the school. It was really cool, and I had friends that went to various churches, and the thing we argued about the most was this. Didn't argue about baptism, didn't argue about end times theology, we argued about spiritual gifts. That was like the dividing. There was like the charismatic kids, and there was the Baptist, quasi-Baptist, non-denominational kids, and we would go back and forth on this topic. I've also been in churches that have had, I would say, some unhealthy approaches. And so I understand the angst. I understand the trepidation that you may have when we talk about spiritual gifts. And it's okay to have those things. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to be honest about it. I want you to acknowledge it. I want you to be aware of how when this topic comes up, you might throw up your defense 
Because what I don't want to happen, church, is over the next several weeks and months is for us to miss out on the good God has for us. Like This is God's word. And there is good that is held out. This is not one of those topics, well, just don't talk about this. We don't want to create problems. No, this is God's word. It is profitable for us. We need it. And so I don't want our defenses and our baggage to get in the way of what the Spirit wants to do. And so let's just be honest. Let's be honest here on Sunday mornings. Let's be honest in gospel community. Let's be willing to bring those things to the table as brothers and sisters in Christ as we have these conversations, as we wrestle these things out in order that we can be transformed. Because bigger than the topic of spiritual gifts, bigger than that, what the Apostle Paul is addressing in these chapters is what it means to be a Spirit-filled community. What it means for us individually and us as a church to be in the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, be empowered by the Spirit, and used by the Spirit. Being a Spirit-filled community, that is what we are going to be looking at in particular over the next three months. And I don't want us to miss out on all that God has for us and what it means to be a Spirit-filled community. So this is going to be a fun ride. (laughs) This is going to be a fun ride. And I'm confident God has some great things for us. Let me just add one more thing. Uh, Because the topic of spiritual gifts is a big topic, and there's a lot of things to sort through. There's more than we could really even do on Sunday mornings. We are going to take time for two different training opportunities to dive a little bit further into this topic. And so I want want you to put two dates on your calendar. The first is March 9th, and the second, March 23rd. So on March 9th, we're going to go a little bit deeper just into the topic of spiritual gifts overall, and in particularly talk about how do you discern what your gifts are, and then how do you practice spiritual gifts in the church? How do we practice a multitude of gifts at First City? And so this training is going to be on just spiritual gifts overall. And then March 23rd, that's going to be the fun one. (laughs) That is going to be the one where we jump deeper into the topic of tongues and prophecy and healing the ones that tend to be more controversial. How do we understand these gifts? Are these gifts functioning in the church today? And here's what what I want to promise you, is that no matter your position, and what, what my goal is for that, is no matter your position, I want you to leave that training a more thoughtful reader of Scripture. I want you to know your position and be better, have a better understanding and be able to articulate your position from Scripture one way or another. And so maybe you change your mind coming out of that meeting, maybe you don't, but I hope you will come out knowing God's word better and being able to read it more faithfully. So those two uh, trainings we are going to be doing, and so please mark your calendar, they will be uh, edifying times for us as a church. So with all of that as backdrop, let's turn our attention to our passage this morning. An article from The Atlantic in 2018 reports this, that approximately 64 million Americans, which is one in five, identify as spiritual but not religious. These are Americans who reject organized religion but maintain a belief in something larger than themselves. And that something can range from Jesus to art to music and poetry. Spiritual but not religious. Have you heard this term? guessing you probably have. Do you identify with this term? It's possible that some of you in the room identify with this notion of spiritual but not religious. The article 
goes on to sort of fill out the general mindset and contours of those who identify with this designation. To the spiritual but not religious, spirituality is seen as a larger, freer arena to explore big questions. It has all the positive connotations of having a life with meaning, a life with some sacredness to it. You have some depth to who you are as a human being, and yet you don't blindly accept a faith passed down to you from your parents. You're not completely rejecting the possibility of a higher power, but you're also not blindly accepting all the tradition. The spiritual but not religious designation, according to this article, is about seeking rather than dwelling, searching for something you believe in rather than accepting something that, while comfortable and familiar, doesn't feel quite right. As one person put it, in the process of traveling around, reading books, and experimenting with new rituals, you can find your identity out there. Spiritual, but not religious. Embracing spirituality, the belief in something higher, something greater than ourselves, but not embracing sort of the structures and the traditions of formal religion. And I want to acknowledge here, it's understandable why many would embrace this designation. Like when you consider the harm that organized religion has done, you consider even some of the struggles that we've experienced in our own time, that, that it makes sense that the pain has been so great, the damage has been so great, that some folks are just like, hey, I'm not giving up on God, I'm not giving up on spirituality, but this whole organized religion thing, this whole church thing, no thank you. And so I'm not saying that everybody who embraces this does so because they've experienced hurt in the past, but many do. And plenty of those who profess Christianity also identify this way for various reasons, whether it be hurt or for other reasons. And so we need to take seriously this designation because it is something very real in our own world, our own community, and perhaps even in our own church. But here's another question for us as we wrestle through this idea of spirituality. Why does spirituality matter to us? Why do we care so much about being spiritual? And you think of even those of you that maybe have experienced hurt from organized religion, yet you don't want to give up on spirituality. Why is that? Why, why do we hold on to this notion of spirituality? Well, I think the article points us in the right direction. It says that spirituality gives us the sense of meaning, sacredness, that there's a depth to life. I don't think we want to let go of that. We recognize that being in tune with the spiritual, spirituality, often puts us in tune with things that are sacred and meaningful. It gives a depth and character to our lives, and we don't want to let go of it. But if we want to put biblical language around this, why, is it, why do we care so much about spirituality? It's because we're made in the image of God. We've been made in the image of God. God is a spirit, and so we are spiritual beings. There is a part of us that is spiritual. We are meant to commune with the spiritual, meant to commune with God and be in touch with what is spiritual. Yes, we're physical, and physical is good, but we're also spiritual beings created to engage the spiritual. And so that's why it is really hard for us to let go of this. Yes, there are those who would claim atheism and agnosticism, but the vast majority of the people in this country and in our world believe in something spiritual. It's not something we can just let go of, but, but, here's the wrestle. What kind of spirituality is actually good? 
what kind is actually true. What, what actually does lead to meaning and purpose and depth of soul and depth of character? What actually does lead to what is true and good and beautiful? What kind of spirituality leads you to communion with the one true God? Is spiritual but not religious sufficient for these things? Is the spirituality that you and I practice sufficient for these things? The title of my message this morning is True Spirituality. True Spirituality. And the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 12, here's what they do. They validate and celebrate our pursuit of spirituality. Yes, but they challenge how we define it. Spiritual, yes, but how do you define that? And in these verses, the Apostle Paul, he cuts right to the heart of the matter and defines what true spirituality is for us. And this is our big idea for this morning. True spirituality submits to the Lordship of Christ. If you want to understand the line between true spirituality and not true spirituality, it's whether or not it submits to the Lordship of Christ. If we want to be spiritual, and for us church, First City Church, if we want to be those who exercise spirit-empowered gifts, then our spirituality must be defined by submission to the Lordship of Christ. That's where we're going this morning. And my prayer is that God, by his word and his spirit, would shape us as those who submit to the lordship of Christ. And so let's unpack this main idea here as we walk through these three verses. And Paul begins chapter 12 by writing, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. And so chapter 12, as we've said, is kind of making this transition in the letter. He's moving from the the chapters where he was talking about using knowledge and theology to not harm one and actually lay down your rights. And now he's going to be shifting to talking about what it means to be spiritual and the power and the work of the Spirit in our lives. And the Greek word, I want to I do a little bit of nerding out here on the Greek word for spiritual gifts, because I think it helps us understand all that the Apostle Paul is doing here. And so the Greek word translated spiritual gifts has a layered meaning. Okay, I won't go into all the, the nerdy Greek stuff, because most of you look at me like, I don't know what that means, I don't really care what that means, just get to the point. Okay? But the word Paul uses in several different ways. In Chapter 14, verse 1, he uses it to mean spiritual gifts. But in chapter 2, verse 15, and chapter 14, verse 37, so two other places, he uses the same word, but it means spiritual persons. And so this word has a layered meaning to it. And so some translations of uh, chapter 12, verse 1, uh, depending on the translation you have, uh, the, the CSB that we use is, says spiritual gifts, the ESV says spiritual gifts, but some say spiritual things or spiritual persons. And which one is right? Well, both are good because both sort of get at the multi-layered meaning of this word. Paul has in view, what does it mean to be a spiritual person who practices and exercises spiritual gifts, gifts of the Spirit. In order to exercise the gifts of the Spirit, you have to be a spiritual person. These things go hand in hand. And so Paul's not just talking about particular gifts and things that we do in the church. He's also talking about who we are as spiritual people. We cannot separate these two. 
They both matter because how you exercise your spirituality, how you understand what it means to be a spiritual person will affect how you exercise your spiritual gifts. Now, how does Paul define spiritual? What does he even mean by spiritual? This is an important question. Because when we think about the word spiritual in our culture, our society, what do we typically think of? If I were to say, this person is a spiritual person, what would you think? You probably think of someone who kind of has this disposition of the mystical. Like they seem to be in tune with things beyond the physical, right? You've met that kind of person and, and they're fun to be around. They're fun to talk to because they're aware of things bigger than just what's in front of them. Or we can think of a spiritual person as someone who practices certain things that puts them in tune with the spiritual. And so we can think easily disposition, personality, or practice, but that's not what Paul means. Paul isn't talking about those things. When he says spiritual, here's what he's talking about. That which is defined by, comes from, and is characterized by the Holy Spirit. To be spiritual, is mean, it means that you have been transformed, you are possessed by, and you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not a matter of personality. It's not even necessarily a matter of particular practices. It's whether or not you belong to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is alive and dwelling in you and working through you. True spirituality is Holy Spirit-born and empowered spirituality. Let me say that again. True spirituality is Holy Spirit-born and Holy Spirit-empowered spirituality. And so Paul's concern for the Corinthians and God's words, God's words concern for us today is that we have a clear understanding of what characterizes the gifts that come from the Spirit and what characterizes people who belong to the Spirit who exercise those gifts. They one and the same. They go together. We cannot separate these two. And we need to keep that in mind as we walk through these next several chapters. And why is Paul concerned? Because the Corinthians were showing behavior characterized by their formal idolatry rather than character characterized by the Spirit. But Paul has concern for the Corinthians because he is seeing pattern in the way that they are living that shows a former way of life rather than being led by the Spirit. Here's what he writes in verse two. You know that when you were pagans, you used to be enticed and led astray by mute idols. So he's calling up their past here and he's reminding them, hey, before you were in Christ, before you were a believer of Jesus, you followed after the pagan religions of the polytheism of Rome. And they were enticed and they were led astray by these false gods, these false idols. They would bow down and worship to wooden and stone idols that were mute. Paul calls them mute, meaning they were powerless. That there was no truth coming from them. They weren't actually communing with a statue. They were mute. And the spirituality of the pagan polytheism in Rome was, had this mindset that spirituality was this thing that you could use for status and power and self-gratification. Like if you were in tune with the power of the gods, that gave you status, gave you power. You were somebody that, that meant something because you were in tune with the gods and you could help people be in tune with the gods. And so if you were spiritual, that gave you status. But it was also a point of self-gratification. Much of the pagan practices, spiritual practices of the time, often involved heightened emotional and physical states. And they often also involved sexual gratification. 
So there was a physicality, a pleasure-seeking element to the, spirit, the way spirituality was practiced by the pagans in Rome, the polytheism in Rome. And so whether it was status-seeking or pleasure-seeking, these Corinthian Christians, while they had walked away from those former practices, still had the same mindset. They still saw spirituality as something, as a pathway to position and power and status and as a pathway towards self-gratification. And Paul is reminding them, hey, that's who you used to be. That mindset belongs to that old false religion. It doesn't belong to those who follow Christ. Paul is concerned that while the Corinthians were no longer necessarily being that directly sinful, the old grooves, those old habits, those old mindsets, that old heart posture was coming up and affecting the way that they understood what it meant to worship Christ and be used by the spirits. That they had the same categories. And so what we see over the next several weeks, what we're going to see is that the Corinthians saw spiritual gifts and spirituality and being a spiritual person was a means to status. It was a means to position. It was a means of personal pleasure and gaining spiritual highs. It was very me-centered, very self-centered. And they would, what would end up happening here is they begin to elevate the gifts with the biggest wow factor. The most spiritual, whatever had the most spiritual pyrotechnics, that was the gift that we wanted. Why? Because then I was someone who had the wow, it, that had the wow factor. Then when I got up and I exercised my gift, everyone would be like, whoa, look at that. And it would give me status. And over time, what ends up happening is those gifts get elevated and the other gifts get minimized and marginalized. And so if you had the wow gift, if you had the it factor, you were someone in the church. If you didn't, you were a nobody. And then if, if I'm getting all this attention and all this status, and then all of a sudden these gifts become now about my pleasure, self-satisfaction, the enjoyment that I get out of them and exercising them. All the while, missing the point of why these gifts were given to the church in the first place. And what's unfortunate, church, is in a lot of ways this doesn't sound much different than how the church in America and the church around the world can be today. We, too often, have been shaped by a world of me-centered spirituality, where our spirituality is a means for us to gain whether it be status and position or whether it be personal pleasure. Can we, can we be honest about this? Can we be honest about the ways in which our spirituality can become me-centered? How easy is it to make spirituality about us? Whether it is about gaining that status in the church because you want to be seen as a spiritual person or you want the gift that gives you status because when you exercise your gift, everybody goes, Wow! Or maybe the ways that we will baptize our pursuit of the American dream with Jesus. All the while, me-centered spirituality. We have adopted a worldly mindset. We have actually adopted the mindset of spiritual, but not religious. Because friends, make no mistake, that approach to spirituality is me-centered. It is a me-centered spirituality. If you listen to the contours of that type of spirituality, what is it? I get to define what my spirituality is. I get to chase whatever form of spirituality gives me fulfillment, gives me pleasure, allows me to become the person that I want to become and chase after the dreams that I have and identify the way I want to identify. Don't ask me to submit to anybody. 
Don't ask me to submit to whether it be King Jesus or a tradition that is bigger than me or a community that is bigger than me. No, my spirituality serves me. And the moment you ask me otherwise, I'm out. Now, understand, I want to address that if, if, if some of you are in the, in the room and, and this is sort of the posture you've taken because of hurt, this does not, what I just said, does not in any way, shape, or form minimize the hurt you experienced. It does not. And I don't want you to think that my push is against, is, is invalidating your pain. No, your pain is real, and it's true, and it matters. But here's what happens. Here's what happens, and here's my fear. So often trauma and pain get mixed up with our sin and our selfishness that we allow the trauma and the pain to justify our sin and selfishness. It's easy. I've been there. I still go there. Like, I get it, but that is not true spirituality. That is not the path of life. And, 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 and what I don't want you to do is I don't want your pain and your trauma to pull you into the hole of selfishness and sin and leave you there when Jesus wants to rescue you. And so hear my push. Hear my push. Don't allow your pain and the hurt you've experienced to push you into more me-centeredness, into selfishness. But for the rest of us, First City Church, can we be honest? Can we be honest? How often is our spirituality about us? How often have we made our spirituality about self? Christianity on our terms. Community on our terms. Serving on our terms. Jesus on our terms. Can we be honest about this? Can we be honest that so often we fall into this mindset, as long as the church and Jesus serves me, benefits me, brings me pleasure, fulfills my wants and desires, gives me the identity that I can be happy with, then I'll take it. But if you challenge me, if you push, if you ask me to repent of sin and die to self, then no. We'll pull back. We'll put distance. We'll, 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 we'll kind of move away from community and move away from relationships that can actually challenge us and call us out of self. Do we really believe, do we really believe that spirituality is meant to be me-centered? I, I, I bet if I were to sit down and talk with you, very few of you would be that direct. But how do we live? How do we live? What, is our li what do our lives say? We might not say that directly, but what do our lives say? Do we live a me-centered spirituality? The Apostle Paul would say to us, God's word would say to us, concerning these spiritual gifts, concerning spiritual things, concerning what it means to be a spiritual person, do not be unaware. I don't want you to be unaware, meaning I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be lost. I don't want you to be blind to what this really means. Rather than a me-centered spirituality, rather than being led astray by the world in its categories, be led into true spirituality a mindset of true spirituality. And what is that? Well, he points us to it in verse three. In the contrast to me-centered spirituality, Paul gives the true definition in verse three. Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. 
and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. How do we know if someone or something is of the Holy Spirit? Is it the pyrotechnics? Is it the flash? Is it the greatness? Is it the wow factor? Is it the, the, the charisma of something? No. It's what do they do with Jesus? How do you know if you are a spiritual person or not? Well, what do you do with Jesus? Is Jesus Lord? Is Jesus the one that you are submitting to? Is Jesus king in your life? Like what defines spirituality, where the Holy Spirit operates, is along the lines of the kingship, the lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul says that no one transformed and empowered by the Spirit would ever say that Jesus is cursed, and the one who declares from their heart, Jesus is Lord, is speaking by the Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit is bringing people into this understanding and submission to the Lordship of Christ. That's where the Spirit operates. That's how the Spirit operates. That's the foundation of all true spirituality is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, understand this. When Paul frames it as these declarations, Jesus is cursed or Jesus is Lord, he's not just talking about what we say. Because you could think, man, I can easily say Jesus is Lord, but, but he's not talking about just verbal performance. You see, in Scripture, a true profession of faith is a reflection of what is actually in the heart. They never, scripture never separates these two. This isn't a magic mantra that you can say. It's not a little word game that you can play. Well, I said the code word, so I'm good with God. That's not how this works. That declaration, Jesus is Lord, is a declaration of the heart, a declaration of someone who has submitted their life to the kingship and lordship of Jesus. That is true spirituality. True spirituality that which belongs to, comes from, and is characterized by the Holy Spirit will always exalt Christ. That is it. That is the line, friends. That is the foundation. And this makes absolute sense because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to exalt Christ. Here's what Jesus told his disciples in the Gospel of John. When the counselor, meaning the Spirit, comes the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Then in chapter 16, he says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will glorify me, because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit testifies of Christ. The Spirit glorifies Christ. He leads people, the people of God, into all truth, and all that truth is about Christ. <laughs> the Spirit is about the ministry of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is radically Christ-centered, and so all he does is point to Christ. All his work is going to point to Christ. The fruit of the work of the Spirit is Jesus Christ, is Christ-likeness, is the exaltation of the kingship of Jesus if someone or something, no matter how flashy, no matter how good, no matter how powerful, no matter how wow, no matter how much it is dressed up in religious language, if it does not glorify Jesus Christ, it's not of the Spirit. Amen. And conversely, if something is ordinary, no flash, nothing that would go wow about that, but it is glorifying Christ, it's exalting the kingship of Christ, it's of the Spirit. It is Holy Spirit empowered. Friends, the line of true spirituality 
is the lordship of Christ. You want to be a truly spiritual person. You want to follow true spirituality. Submit to the lordship of Christ. Submit to the kingship of Christ. Church, let us be wise and discerning. Let's not get caught up in hype. Oh, so much hype. So much hype. Our world lives for hype. Let's not get caught up in all the flash and the wow as if that is the true sign of the Holy Spirit. Let's not fall for shallow and empty spirituality because someone is impressive. And above all, let's not chase me-centered spirituality. Because look, me-centered spirituality is not good news. Me-centered spirituality is not a gospel or the gospel. Because a me-centered spirituality, it's no more powerful than you are. It's no greater than you are. It's no more powerful than you can be. And look, all you can do, the best that you can do, the best that me-centered spirituality can do is apply the band-aids of self-improvement, to be sure. But it cannot truly transform what is broken in you, and it sure as heck cannot <laughs> transform what is broken in our world. That's how strongly I feel about this. <laughs> Preacher almost swore. But you get my drift. Me-centered spirituality is no gospel. It cannot fix. It cannot transform. And listen, right now, our world is turning up the volume on me-centeredness, turning up the volume on individualism. And what's the result? What's the fruit? What's happening in our world? More righteousness and justice and love and goodness and faithfulness to Jesus? No. We are wrecking and we are ruining ourselves and one another in our me-centeredness. And our me-centered spirituality is gas on the fire. How we are doing damage to ourselves and our others with our me-centered spirituality. We are wrecking ourselves physically and emotionally and spiritually and relationally. What good is this me-centered spirituality? Yeah, it might feel good for a time. It might feel like it's helping you for a time. It may feel like it's putting you in touch with what is true and good and beautiful for a time, but ultimately it will fail you. Ultimately, it will leave you empty. Ultimately, it will drive you deeper into your selfishness and your pride. And here's what happens at the end of that. It ultimately leads you to the judgment of God because me-centered spirituality is in rebellion to the one true king. Look, you may have never said Jesus is cursed with your mouth. You're like, I don't ever remember saying Jesus is cursed with my mouth. Yeah, but you can say it with your life. You can say it by the way you live. Like friends, either we will enthrone Jesus and curse our self-centeredness, or we will enthrone ourself and curse Jesus. Me-centered spirituality, enthroned self, and curse is Jesus, and it is under the judgment of God. And if this is how we live, this will be our end. No life, no transformation, no hope in this life, and judgment in the next. Paul is being serious here because this is a serious issue. Matters of the spiritual are profound. But here's the good news of the gospel. <laughs> Embedded in these three verses is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is Lord. That is good news for you and me. Why? 
because that Lord, that King, stepped from his throne into our world, into this beautifully broken world full of sin and suffering. And what did he do? He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He came and he laid down his life to to take the judgment and the penalty your sin and my sin deserved. And he was crucified and he was killed and he was buried, but he didn't stay dead. (laughs) Praise God on the third day, the spirit resurrected him from the dead in victory over every sin, every evil and death itself. And in that victory, the power of sin has been broken. The power of death has been broken. The power of Satan and evil have been broken. And if you are in Christ, you've been set free. You've been forgiven and you've been set free. And the beautiful thing is Jesus ascended into heaven as the resurrected and reigning king. And one day he's coming back to renew and restore all things. But in the meantime, he hasn't left us alone. He has poured out the Holy Spirit on his people. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit transforms us, sets us free, makes us more and more like Jesus. And as Pastor Paul told us a couple weeks ago, takes a bunch of people who would naturally be enemies and unites them into a family that love and serve one another. That's the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit empowers us, gives us gifts so that we can serve and love one another. And all the while, the Spirit is transforming us. One day, as we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to restore our bodies. He's going to give us bodies that are incorruptible and will live forever, free of sickness and sin forever. That is what the Spirit is doing. And praise God, when Jesus comes back, the Spirit's work will be complete in us. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the good news that Jesus is Lord. And so this morning... If you're looking for true spirituality, if you want to experience the life that is in true spirituality, don't go to me-centered spirituality. Don't go to spiritual but not religious. Submit to the lordship of Jesus. Turn from your sin, turn from yourself, and submit to the good and gracious rule and reign of Jesus Christ, the king who will forgive you, a king who will set you free, a king who will restore and renew you, a king who welcomes you into the family and brings you to a loving heavenly father. Submit to that king. I guarantee you that kingship is far greater than the kingship of self. The gospel is far greater than me-centered spirituality. And so church, in conclusion, the question we need to wrestle as we go through these conversations about spiritual gifts, yes, Understanding spiritual gifts specifically is good and helpful for us, but underneath that conversation for the next several weeks and months, here's what we need to keep coming back to. Are we submitted to the Lordship of Christ? Are we submitted to his kingship? Is his kingship the thing that is defining us, the thing that we live for? Then when we think about exercising our spiritual gifts, it's done under his rule and reign for his glory. And so let the posture of our hearts as we venture into this discussion And let the word of God transform us over the next coming weeks. Let the posture of our hearts be submission. We desire to glorify Christ, live for Christ. And in that, love and serve one another. Love and serve those in this church and love and serve those in this world. Because far, far greater than me-centered spirituality is the spirituality that comes when we are truly transformed by the Holy Spirit. And look, maybe there will be spiritual pyrotechnics. Maybe there won't. But may we as a church be defined not by our spiritual pyrotechnics, but by our love 
and glorification of Christ and our love for one another. May, may our exercise of spiritual gifts not be defined by the wow and the flash, but by the fact that we love and serve and build one, and up a, one another up in Christ. If that is what is defining our practice of spiritual gifts, if that is what is defining our hearts in this community, we will be practicing true spirituality. Let's pray.